0: Well, good morning again to all of you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I hear things. Now I'm ready for this of announcements for you. Um, welcome to those of you that are watching live as well. Um, some announcements we have. I'm super excited. Next Saturday is going to be our spring clean event, and many of you have signed up for that. It is not too late to sign up for that. We are excited to have any and all workers. Um, but more than just getting things done, I mean, if you guys know me, you know that I like getting things done. So this is going to be amazing. But in addition to that, we get to hang out together and just work alongside of each other, have conversation and I'm excited for community that that will build among us. Okay, who's got a mic on? Oh, Battery's dead on this. Talk faster. Okay, I can do that. You replaced them this morning? Okay. Do you guys hear that though? Like, okay. Is your mic on? Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm a pea brain, and like every little thing. What's that? What's that? Everybody freeze! Do you hear it? Check for predators. Okay. The spring clean event that's happening on Saturday. It goes from 10 o'clock till 2 o'clock. Even if you can't come for that whole time, we would just love to have you for a part of that time. You'll just come on in and there will be people that direct you to where you need to go and how you can be most helpful. Um, and so the way that you sign up for that is by simply texting the word spring, not spring clean, just spring. Um, to the Brookview number that's behind me. The other way that you can do it is to sign up on your online communication card. And then the next day, when we're all shiny and sparkly clean here, we are gonna mess this whole place up by eating a meal together. Um, Yeah, okay, I like that you clapped. Everyone else is like, what? You're gonna mess up our work? We are gonna mess it up because we live here. Um, And so we're going to live here well. We're going to transform this space into a dining hall for all of us where we will get to sit around round tables and enjoy a meal together, a brunch, a breakfast. People are bringing in casseroles. We have people to warmly welcome you to your table. We have centerpieces coming in. It's going to be so Lovely, and I hope that you will come for that. We will have a kids' church program running next door so you can be child-free. We have a youth table. Sydney, you love it when I call you out, right? Is that your favorite thing ever? She's like, oh, seriously, bounce, girl, bounce. Okay, Cheyenne, it's your moment. (laughs) You guys are going to hang out right over here. I have a map, table number 11. So if you want to wear 11 shirts to the morning, you can. Or you can sit with your parents if you don't like each other. That's awkward. but OK. So you'll come. We will get you into chairs. We're just going to really enjoy this. And Jason's looking at me like, seriously, girl, girl. Oh, that's the story I'm telling myself. <laughs> If you were here last week, you know all about the stories we tell ourselves. I just had a story. Also, Jason said that he told you that I made him hold his hand at nights. I was not happy about that, you guys. The story I told myself is that's embarrassing, but it wasn't a story, it was real. But we made it through that this week, didn't we, Jason? Because we know how to do hard things, and the highs and the lows, we are together, better together. Okay, yep, he just gave me this. So come to the table, come to the table, you guys. And now I also want to update you on Ukraine. Um, so we have been kind of helping with CAMA services, which is compassion and mercy associates, which is the relief arm of our denomination, which is the Christian Missionary Alliance. And together, churches across the nation so far have given over $450,000 to help rebuild churches, to help structurally, I mean, just like be the hands and feet of Jesus. And they get to look around and decide where is God moving and how can we help? Is it evacuations that still need to happen? Is it hold off for this because there's a massive rebuild that's coming? Um, But you have postured the church leaders so, so well. And Brookview has given over $10,000 to that. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Yeah. For loving people well that you don't even know and people you haven't met yet and it is a beautiful thing that we get to do together and that is part of the body of Christ this broader community that we are a part of where we get to link arms together to do more than what we could do on our own and I just love the idea of church and the way that we get to do that together and so I just want to pray again for Ukraine um, as you are maybe lighting candles in your home where this is the last week that we'll do this here. But, um, but this is in remembrance of the suffering and the tragedy and this cry to God to um, bring peace to our land. So let's pray together. God, you see all of your world and there are so many places and pieces and moments that bring you great joy but there's also places and spaces in Ukraine, in Russia, what is going on in the conflict, conflict all over the world, that makes you ache. And God, you stand with us in that ache. And you ask us to lean into you, to cling to you, God, to, um, to, to fix our gaze on you. And when we do that, we will be changed. And God, you will provide And so we pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and in Russia right now, God, would you be with them? Would you surround them with your presence, God, with your love, with your goodness? Would you give them wisdom as they are walking around in a war-torn country trying to figure out what do we do? I can only imagine the chaos and just the overwhelming nature. But God, would you breathe new life into them in this week, in this moment, God, would you give them rest? And as your church is gathering together this morning or has already gathered, God, I pray that they would feel the movement of your spirit among them, reminding them of who they are in you, and that you have come to set us free. That, God, your, your kingdom is now but also not yet. In may they wait in hope in you, God. And while they wait, would you draw near? It's in your name I pray. Amen. I love that you're here, and we're going to transition with a zippy number.
1: make you feel happy? Oh, man. Well, today, guys, we are wrapping up this four-week series we've been in on community. And to kind of launch in today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, in your mind, go back to February 2020. Think back to life before COVID. I mean, I don't know about you. I, I could have never imagined what was what was headed our way in march of 2020 yes i mean i think about just the initial shock of a stay home order i'm like they can do that <laughs> like wow okay and then and then i think about the initial thought that that this would this thing would all be kind of blow over within a few weeks right maybe by easter right we'll we'll be back to life as normal and then the finish line just kept getting pushed farther back. And it felt like we were, we were in the midst of this really long race and we were exerting all that we had, but we're almost there. And then we get within sight of that thing and boom, it gets pushed back again, out of sight again. And, and you could, it was just like, man. And, and then on top of the, uh, the isolation came all of the polarization. I mean, it was just waves like social justice issues, right? And riots and friends and families just kind of ripped apart by politics and then more isolation and then schools were online only on zoom and life groups were on zoom and it was zoom, zoom, zoom (laughs) and frustration about zoom. I thinking back to February, 2020, I could have never imagined what was coming. Just could have never imagined it. Um, And this, um, all of this, this just continual breakdown of relationships and community, it just brings me to an obvious observation and I think it's this, in in this past season, most of us have become acutely aware of our need for community. So over these past few weeks, we've been thinking about that. We've been thinking about as brothers and and sisters in Jesus, how can we function like, like family? Like amidst a broader culture that is filled now with so much contempt, how can we begin to treat one another with more and more honor? And then last week, we looked at a couple of issues that that really impact community, stories we tell ourselves about other people and and situations. By the way, so we got home and and Brooklyn was like, wasn't that funny when you said that mom used to make you hold her hand at night and... And Jen's like, w- wait, what? <laughs> We're having dinner. It was a nice meal. It was really going well. And then Jen said, you said that in your message? And I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, yes. I say, like, you tell, you tell everybody that story. She's like, yes, but I know those people. And I know they won't judge me. Unmet expectations. We have unmet expectations. Um. But all of this whole series has just been about how do, we, how do we experience deeper community? Like in this season of relational breakdown, we need each other. And this just brings me back to a key concept in Jesus' vision for us. Jesus understood human flourishing like, like no one ever has. He understood how we're wired, like how we actually are wired, how, how the world actually works. And central to Jesus' vision for human thriving is our need for community. He taught about it and he modeled it again and again and again. So we're going to dive in. This is Matthew chapter 4, very famous scene. Matthew chapter 4, verse starting with verse 18, it says as Jesus was walking beside the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people or the old school way of saying that is, I will make you fishers of men. Sorry, ladies. Uh, but that, that idea, that moniker of fish for people, that, that idea was not original with Jesus, actually. Like, no, like, he, he didn't come up with that? No, he didn't. Jesus did not just pull that metaphor out of thin air. It was a common first century idiom among Jewish people. And it referred to a rabbi that would teach the way of God so compellingly that it would like capture the minds and hearts of listeners. And Jesus is saying to these two fishermen, he's saying, come apprentice under me, and I will make you like me. I will help you become teachers that captivate hearts and minds with the way of God. And so to Jewish boys in the first century, this was like the invitation of a lifetime to be invited by a a rabbi to become his disciple, to learn about the way of God inside the inner circle of a rabbi, to learn learn and then possibly one day even become a rabbi yourself. This was like out of reach for 99.9% of the guys. It was only for the best, only for the brightest. In essence, to study under a rabbi in his inner circle as a disciple was like being offered a full scholarship to Oxford or Harvard or Yale or Washington State, (laughs) right? It was like the most elite level of education and opportunity. It was so unexpected because these guys are not scholars. These are not the guys that scored well on the SATs. These guys, these guys didn't do the college prep classes even. They just sort of made it through and now they're fishermen. These are not the kind of boys that would ever be invited to disciple under a rabbi, which is a big part of why they responded so strongly and so quickly. It's also uh, a big deal that they had heard him preach and seen him perform miracles. So you got to factor that into the equation as well. But when Jesus says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of people, he's saying, come apprentice under me, and I will help you become teachers that captivate hearts and minds with the way of God. And they don't hesitate. It says, at once, they left their nets and followed him. But Peter and Andrew were just like the beginning of this, this whole crew, right, that Jesus invited. You have the 12, and then there were many, many people outside of, uh, of that even. It says, uh, verse 21 Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. So these guys are fishermen too. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, like they walked away from their life and their career, and followed him. And very early on, as we, as we sort of unfold the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, we pick up on the idea that to follow Jesus is to live in community. Like, Jesus didn't just call one disciple, singular, but many disciples, plural. And Jesus continues to call people into his community. But it's always a very high bar of commitment. So let, let's skip ahead a few verses, or a few chapters in Matthew. This is chapter 8. It says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. The teacher of the law, okay, So a very prestigious man came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He's like, I'm ready to give up everything to follow you and to learn from you how to become like you. I'm ready to join your little community and do this thing, Jesus. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is not a very compelling salesman. I'm like, this is gracious, but it's very, very honest. He's like, Are you, like, dude, you sure you want to do this? It's, it's not going to be glamorous. It, it, it'll cost you. And Jesus would go around. He would invite people, follow me. But he was, he was never shy about laying out the level of, of commitment and sacrifice. Okay, in the next verse, Jesus has another conversation. It feels very similar. It says, another disciple said to him, this is somebody that's already kind of, kind of following Jesus, Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, that's, that's not like literal. It's a, it's a figure of speech. It's not like his dad just died, and he's asking Jesus to be able to go to the funeral. What he's saying is, okay, I, I do want to follow you and kind of become one of your disciples, not one of the 12, but you know, one of the many that, that follow you and learn from you. But let me go back home and um, wait for my father to die. And then the family inheritance and land will all pass down to me. Otherwise, if I abandon the family right now, I'll miss out on the inheritance. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, I I love that the story doesn't tell you what happens with either of these two guys. Jesus just kind of lays it out. Like, this is going to cost you and let the dead bury their own dead. And with either guy in this story, the invitation is for you as the reader to identify, okay, like, Where am I in the invitation of Jesus? So notice, some people, they were willing and they were ready to give up everything. They were ready to join Jesus and and, and his little community. But for others, they're like, "Ah, I don't know about this. this. This is a really high bar. This is a big sacrifice. This is a big cost. This is a big deal. And then we see Jesus encounter a completely different kind of person. Next chapter, Chapter 9, it says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man, named, a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, same thing for Matthew, chance of a lifetime. It's a no-brainer. It's a chance. So, so then the very scene changed. now, we go from the tax collector's booth in the street to, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, hey, follow me, and then hey, cook for me. Where, where, me and my boys are coming over. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Awkward. Okay, like, guys, if you're a tax collector and a sinner, who are you friends with? Tax collectors and sinners. So so Jesus and all of his disciples go to Matthew's for dinner, but it's not just them. It's not a private party. It's It's like a big party. And it's tax collectors. Like notoriously wealthy, corrupt men and sinners, which was code for prostitutes. And then Rabbi Jesus and his apprentices. This is a very odd mix of people, to say the least. And, and, and it says in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And this is a quote from the Old Testament that they, they would have known. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So it's interesting. Matthew tells us that there are people inside of Jesus' community, and they, they, come from, they come from all across the spectrum of spiritual maturity. Like you have good like Jewish boys like Peter and James and John and Andrew, and then you add in a tax collector who they were notoriously corrupt, and, and, and even now his friends. So just notice something. Apparently, Jesus is more interested in the level of commitment than the level of maturity. Now think about what a mishmash of diversity Jesus' disciples were as a crew. I mean, think about the 12. This is Matthew chapter 10. Now we get a little description of the the, kind of the inner circle. And there's a much, there are concentric circles that kind of work out from there of people that follow Jesus. But this is like inner circle. These are the names of the 12 apostles, okay, the nucleus of this much larger community. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, if we were to like do a deep dive into each of these guys and look closely, we would see that Jesus's little community was incredibly diverse. Like if you do a study into all these guys, you discover striking differences. Uh, We don't have time to do all of that. So let's just take two in this list where we're given their titles. There's Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Now, we've, we've talked about this before at Brookview, so I'm not going to go deep into this. But the Zealots, okay, of which Simon was a part, were a right-wing Jewish insurgency group, and they would conduct violent, guerrilla-like terrorist activity. They would attack unsuspecting Roman soldiers. It, it was terrorism, all in a violent quest for Israeli independence. So you have Simon the Zealot, now in the crew of Jesus, You've still got his knife on him and then you have matthew the tax collector who prior to joining this little crew was literally working for the romans to collect taxes from their people from the jewish people from israel can, can you imagine the political tensions between these two guys I mean, they could not be more opposed on their political ideology. Can you imagine morning coffee? Good morning, traitor. Hello, terrorist. You know, and this is just like one example of the polarities among the 12. And there were tons more. So how did they work through all these differences? How did they work through all these differences as they lived life together? Well, we're not told. Like, we don't know. But they did. Somehow, they lived together as family in community. Somehow, they, they navigated through all these tensions. So let's just kind of take a step back. And I just want to make a couple of observations. The first is, Jesus lived in community. Like, let that sink in for a minute. He, he, Jesus was not a sage with a white beard up on a mountain all alone right? And, and then second, the call to follow Jesus was a call into community. To say yes to following Jesus was simultaneously to say yes to living in community. Apparently, following Jesus is not something that we are intended to do alone. Like, community is right at the center of what Jesus cares about in this world. Now, this does not mean by any means that it's unhealthy or wrong to be alone. In fact, you could argue that silence and solitude are, are also essential. I mean, this is interesting. Some, some experts on spiritual formation argue that the two key ingredients to deep, like, spiritual transformation are very simply silence and solitude balanced with community. Because these are the two containers that kind of hold, hold all the others. And and when you think about it, as a general rule, the best moments of healing and breakthrough with with Jesus for us either come when we're alone with him in the quiet, or they tend to come when we are together in community. And if you read the four New Testament biographies of Jesus, you pick up real fast that Jesus would just sort of oscillate back and forth okay, between silence and solitude and community. He would retreat uh, like into the wilderness to, to get away to a quiet place and then he would sneak right back into community. And it was this rhythm. It was this, this dance, this, this back and forth. But for, for many of us, we, we either consciously or unconsciously avoid both scenarios. I mean, think about yourself. Think about this. We are, we are pretty reluctant to go all the way into silence and solitude. Like if I said, hey, we're gonna gather here and um, we're all gonna find a separate space and we're just gonna have four hours of silence and solitude. How many of you'd show up for that? We're, thank you. There's one person that loves Jesus in here. You guys, for the most part, we are terrified to really enter the quiet where there's nothing to distract us Just our soul, like, laid bare before God. But also, we're unwilling to go, like, fully unhindered into, like, authentic community. Like friends hanging out a little bit, you know, playing some games. Trev, what's a good game to play with your friends? Tag. (laughs) Just playing a little leapfrog with your your neighbors next door, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hey, Bill and Julie, want to come over and play tag? I love that. (laughs) Right, we're, we're friends just hanging out, like keeping it casual, man. Yeah, cool, like a little wine, a little conversation. Great. But to go all the way to that place of vulnerability and openness, that place where you like really let people in and you really let them see you, uh... So both silence and solitude and community scare us. And so what happens for most of us is we just sort of hover somewhere in this middle ground. It's what M. M. Scott Peck called pseudo-community. This place where like, people are pleasant and there's general nice, niceness, okay, but there is, there's no like, depth of authenticity. And, and this can happen in a church just as it happens in any kind of community. We are are scared to go all the way into community. We resist it. The thing is, if we never get past that sort of pseudo-community experience, there's there's healing and there's a fullness of life that we will miss out on. True community is scary, but it is something that we need to come fully alive. Now there's all sorts of reasons why we resist it. And in my experience as a pastor, um, and I don't have data for this, um, this is just like an observation, but, but for me, when I look at this and think about why, what, what are the barriers, I, I think there are kind of three primary barriers. Now, there's, there's more than three, but th- these are the three that I see most often, and here's, here's what I would say are the top three barriers to us like doing a deep dive into community. Um, individualism, idealism, and intimidation. Okay, so in, in what's left of this message, I just want to take each one of these in turn and ask you to kind of do a a little self-assessment and think, is this me at all? Um, So three reasons we resist deep levels of community. One is simply individualism, right? We we live in a culture of hyper-individualism. Now, there's always a tension between self or group uh, and the community. To live in deep, authentic, meaningful community, you can't just do whatever you want. You can't just go wherever you want, do whatever you want. You ever vacation with a group of people? It's so annoying. Everybody's looking around at each other going, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? You want to go there? And, so, and everybody's, and then the, the person with the biggest personality goes, I think we should do this. And everyone's going, oh, that sounds terrible. But they're like, okay. Right? I'm trying to sell you on how awesome community is. But this is a problem, like, you, you, if you're in community, you can't just do whatever you want, right? Like, you need to do what the group decides to do, even if you'd rather do something different, even, like, you're going to need to show up, even if you don't feel like it, even if some other better offer comes along. But here's, here's just the hard reality of life. You can have freedom and autonomy, you can, but you cannot at the same time have deep, meaningful community. The reality is you're, you're faced with a choice, and in our culture, we just strongly are conditioned to lean toward autonomy and away from community. This is how our, is how our world works, individualism. Okay, another block to community is idealism. Now, idealism is when the dream of community gets in the way of actual community. We, we can we can fall so in love with the idea of community. We can fall so in love with like a vision of maybe, what, let's say, what a church should be. Fall in love with the idea of what, what marriage really ought to be. Sweetheart, this is what marriage ought to be. Or the idea of friendship or whatever. And we can be so in love and so committed to the ideal that when we encounter actual community, it's just super disappointing. And our disillusionment then becomes Toxic, because we're bitter and we're upset. Uh, One of my heroes, like uh, one of my all-time Christian heroes is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Lutheran pastor famous for resisting the Nazis in Germany. But prior to that, prior to the rise of Hitler, Bonhoeffer established a co-housing community where about 150 people lived and followed Jesus together. Can you imagine that? Living and following Jesus together like in a home, in a housing community. And it was called Finkenwald. And and as the Nazis rose to power, the community became a Christ-centered resistance movement that was kind of underground until it wasn't underground. And it was eventually shut down by the Gestapo. And Bonhoeffer was arrested and he was put to death by Nazi Germany. And I believe he was 39 years old. But before he died, he wrote a classic little book on community called Life Together. And in it, he talks about what it, what it actually takes to live in rich, authentic community, like for, for brothers and sisters in Christ to, to live as family, to live together and work together and grow together. And he had years of firsthand experience. So in this book, he wrote about something that he said is absolutely death for community. And the first time I, I heard this, I was like, man, I, I had never thought of that, but that is so true. I have seen that again and again. And so here's, here's what he writes. He said, the sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Then he says, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself he enters the community of christians with his demands sets up his own law and judges the brethren and god god himself accordingly like you can fall so in love with the with an idea that it stands in the way of loving actual people and even though the, the intentions of the idealistic person may be really honest and really good you can then hold people that are before you to some unattainable vision. And in the end, what happens is you destroy the people, the very people that you claim to be loving. I, I've seen this happen in Christian community many times, but it, it honestly can happen in any kind of community. I mean, it happens in friendships, it happens in families, and, and most certainly happens in marriage. I mean, our, our, the way that our culture talks about romance and love, there's so much idealism in it. And so much harm is done to marriages by romanticism and idealism. So many marriages struggle because of just like wildly unrealistic expectations. We, we put this dream on the relationship or on our spouse and then they can't live up to it and, and we can't live up to it. Like real marriage is, is learning to love an actual person, not a dream or an ideal, an actual person. And that means there's so much junk to work through. Okay, I'm just... Out of curiosity, we got a pretty young group in here this morning, but. Also, some of you guys I haven't seen for a while in your facial hair. It's so good. Okay, I'm curious, since we're talking about marriage and idealism and all that, who in this room has has been married the longest? Um, Jen and I have been married for 25 years this coming June. Yes. So if you've been married 25, 25 years or longer, would you raise your hand? All right. All right. Keep keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Thirty years or longer. Doug. Do we oh and Gene and Mike. Okay, okay, okay. Thirty years longer? Thirty one. Thirty one. Thirty five in August. 35, four kids raised, one's a senior. You're on your way. You guys, it's so good. Um, but it takes it takes work. This is real. And, and in our culture, there's so much idealism and romanticism around love and marriage. There's also a ton of idealism around church community. Like, and this makes sense. Like It makes sense that we would have really high expectations for church, right? These are people that follow Jesus, right? I mean, church community should be like heaven on earth, right? But you you have to be really careful about clinging to too much idealism. A church is is filled with flawed people trying to figure out how to learn to live the way of Jesus together, and they stumble and they fall and they struggle all the time, even the leaders. Even the pastor is flawed. We don't have to go too deep into that. <laughs> but as with marriage, people who, who are idealistic about church community can sort of wait around for the perfect fit, like for the, you know, the their soulmate, which is you know, like right out there with your unicorn. Either way... You just sort of wait, wait around for the perfect church and, and then it never comes. And why doesn't it come? Why doesn't it come? How come nobody can do church right? Because it's a myth. Or they just sort of bounce from one community to the next to the next or one relationship to the next to the next from one church to the next to the next in search of the ideal. And here's where the sad irony loves. They will, they will never engage in actual community with actual people in an actual church. Why? Because they love the church so much. That's ironic, and it's sad. So there are different blocks to community, right? There's, there's individualism. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and I don't want to be tied down to other people or anything else. There's idealism. And then one more block to community is this, and this is huge. It's just sheer intimidation. And I think for many of us, this is, this is kind of the main block. Here's the thing, we're scared of it. I mean, at the root, this is this is this is what's underneath everything. It's just fear. And I I don't, and by the way, I don't just mean like those of you, those of us, that are introverts and have social anxiety. Which, by the way, is me. Some of you are like, you're an introvert. Yes, I am. I, you guys, I have wrestled with social anxiety my entire life. I tend to be pretty introverted. Jen has to, Jen pushes me a little bit to get out there Um, and I know that there are a lot of us out there. We could have a recovery group if we need. But but I've talked about this before and this is really important. Being introverted or extroverted is not about how relational you are. It's actually not. It's about how social you are and some people will kind of like find out that I'm, I'm an introvert And they think it's weird for a pastor to be kind of on the introvert side and they'll say, you're an introvert? That's weird. Does that mean you like, does that mean you like hate people? (laughs) To which I'm like, no. Of course not. Just you. So okay, here's the thing, I, 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 well, I, like, I'm not highly social. I'm really not, if you knew me, you'd know I'm not. I am, I am actually though, I am highly relational. I do love people. I just don't prefer large groups of strangers. Like the cocktail party that you're supposed to walk around and meet all kinds of new people, makes me want to pee my pants. <laughs> Some of you are like, you talked about that last week, what's going on? <laughs> do you need medication? No, I, I, just, I don't know. Uh, but man, you guys, I, I love, I love, love, love deep conversations with one or two people. I like to get past all the surface stuff and go, and go quite a bit deeper, but I'm an introvert. And as a pastor, I, I, what happens is I have to stretch outside my comfort zone. And this, doing this, playing this role has forced me to do that over the past 20 ish years. And I'm getting better at it. But here's, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. This is, I'm serious about this. There are days after church where something hits me. It's just sort of a wave that comes over me. Sometimes it's because the room is filled with people that I, you know, I, I don't know or we have a bunch of visitors or strangers and people that I don't know well. And what happens is when I get to, I like walk off the stage and I just, I just want to flee. This, this really happens. Um, that does not mean that I don't love people. And some of you can relate to that. It does not mean that you don't love people. Some of the most highly relational people I know are people who like over decades that have lived in rich webs of relationships, they are introverted. And some of the loneliest, most superficial, transient, most non-committal people I know are like off the charts extroverts who make friends easily everywhere they go. Now that is not a slam on extroverts. Well, it kind of is. but. It's not a slam on extroverts any more than like a defense of introverts. It's just to say that this is really not about whether you're introverted or extroverted. We are all a little bit scared to let our real selves be laid bare with people. We all are. But whether you're highly social or not, the thing is you need community. Not Not a cocktail party with a large room filled with strangers. You need people that are like real with you and you were real with, and and here's here's what makes the difference, okay, deep community happens only when vulnerability and accountability are both present. These two things are like the yin and the yang of authentic community, whether it's in family or marriage or or friendship. You, You really are not going to have depth unless both are present. And in a community where, where transformation is like the goal, like, you know, that may not be the community of your neighborhood. But in a, in a community where transformation is the goal, which, by the way, that's what a church is for, is for us to be transformed and look more and more like Jesus, these two things working together are absolutely vital. Guys, we, we have to have this. To be a Jesus kind of community, this is essential so I, what, like, what is my dream for our church family, for this little community, for life groups and ID groups and friendships that develop here? My, my dream is for us to become a place of like love-drenched accountability, to be a community that grows in both vulnerability and Accountability. Because if all you have is vulnerability, I've seen places where people are like super vulnerable, like this is a totally safe place to be laid bare, to reveal who you are, just lay it all on the table. And in response, there's compassion and there's solidarity, but there's no accountability. There's no one to call you to a higher standard. And in that kind of a situation, there's not going to be much growth. On the flip side, if you try to develop accountability, but there's no vulnerability. Like if we all stay at a surface level in what we share with one another, and if we refuse to go to authentic emotional places, same thing. We're just not gonna change very much. We're not gonna grow very much. We need vulnerability and accountability. And this is why one of the most transformational communities in the world is a place where both vulnerability and accountability are off the charts. It's it's a place where people where people come and they, and they say, Hi, my name is Nicole, and I'm an alcoholic. And this week was really tough, and I almost dove into the bottle. I'm a mess, and I need help. You guys, when community is done well, it can transform us. It really can. But for a variety of reasons, we all resisted on some level. So I just, here's what I want to do. I want to close this series by asking you to think about you. And I I just want to encourage you to ask yourself a simple question. Where can I take a step toward deeper community? Where can you take a step toward deeper community? And I just want to invite you right now to kind of bow your head and close your eyes and be honest with yourself. Like, what are the main blocks that tend to keep you out of community? Okay, maybe you're entering into community really well, but, but when, when you tend not to, when the things that get in the way, what are the main blocks that keep you out of community? Maybe you've really bought into the cultural dream of individualism. When you feel tension between autonomy and community, you consistently choose autonomy. You, you don't want to risk freedom. But you, you, you continually commit. To autonomy, and it's costing you community again and again. How could you, if that's you, how could you take a step toward community? Or maybe you're an idealist and your idealism's just getting in the way. You, you have this image in your mind of what marriage should be or what your family should be or what friendship should be or what church should be or what your life group should be, but your idealism is making you bitter, critical, and distant. You're so in love with your dream community that you aren't loving actual people. What would it look like for you to take a small step toward community? Or maybe you're just afflicted with intimidation. You're you're afraid of community. And maybe you're an extrovert and you have lots of shallow friendships. But the truth is, you aren't letting anybody see the real you. How can you take a step toward community? Maybe you're an introvert and you just need more friends, but you resist putting yourself in those places. How can you take a step toward community? Maybe you need to allow yourself to become more vulnerable. Just let yourself be seen and known more deeply. Let go of all the image management and just get real. How can you take a step toward community? Maybe you don't ever want to be held accountable, so you're very careful about what you share. You don't want to be held to anything, so you just hold back. How can you take a step toward community? Or maybe you just need to... to to act on a simple idea of some kind. Like maybe you sense that being in a life group would be a great next step. You know, maybe you used to be in one, you know, back in the day. And maybe an obvious next step for you would just be to get in one again. Or maybe you've never done that and you just sense that it's time. Or maybe a small step would be to come to the spring clean, like do some shoulder-to-shoulder work with other people. Or maybe it would be to come to the community meal, like next Sunday, during the time of normal time of church, sit around a table with other people and get to know some people a little bit better. Maybe that kind of thing makes you really nervous. So a next step would be to push through that and just come and, and, and step out there a little bit. Maybe a next step for you would be to open up more in your life group or your ID group. Like you're going and, and consistent and it's good, but you know you're, you're holding back quite a bit. You're resisting being authentic and letting people see the real you. Or maybe you keep getting the sense that you should pursue a relationship more. You should ask someone in your group or someone in your life somewhere to like grab coffee or lunch or dinner or just hang out. And a natural next step for you would just be to, to pursue that. Or maybe you've got something that you're, you're struggling with. And it brings you shame and you, you hate that you're doing it and you haven't told anyone about it that could actually hold you accountable. Someone that would loving, lovingly walk with you. Someone that could provide some accountability and some friendship and some, some love-drenched accountability. Where can you take a, a deeper step into community? Like, you guys, figuring that out, it really, really matters because we all need community. We need vulnerability and accountability. So, how can you step toward that? Okay, I just want to invite you to open your eyes. I just want to say, as as I close out today, last thing, uh, I just want to reiterate something that I have kind of said over and over over the last four weeks. And it's that, according to Jesus, a church is supposed to be a family, it's not a building, it's not an event on Sundays. It's not a nonprofit that does good in a community; it's family, and we all need family. And so I just, I just want to say that you guys have been like family to me for a really long time. And I don't have much. Jen's family graciously has adopted me in, but they're all the way in Ferndale <laughs> or Fernburg. That's what we like to call it. I'm so thankful for this little community called Brookview because you guys have been like family to me and to Jan and to our kids for such a long time. And this, this little family is so far from perfect, right? We got issues. We got issues, but we're family. And I can't tell you what that has meant to me. I can't tell you what that's meant to me. And I know that it's meant so much to so many of you as well. And it's, it's, it's really, really special. So um, I just want to invite you, would you stand? I'm going to close in prayer and we're going to spend some time in worship. God, I thank you that, that when you adopt us in to be your children and we, you become father to us and we become your children, we, we not only inherit you in this relationship with you, but, but we inherit brothers and sisters. We inherit... A family and God I, I just pray for for Brickview. as we as we are sort of coming coming out the other side of COVID it seems to me anyway um, God would you would you enable us to figure out ways to be authentic with each other and to provide accountability and and to just be family together I pray that you would fill us with your spirit pray that you would fill us with with wisdom and grace and compassion and all the things that we need to actually love one another but I pray that you would build this thing that we have here more and more into the kind of family that you dream of. Not the kind of family I dream of or Jen dreams of or Trevor or or anybody else around here, but the one you dream of. God, would would you do amazing things here? Would you set us in a place where there's love, there's accountability, a place where we belong? God, move among us in this next season. Amen.